Hey, it's Broken Office Chair, a podcast produced by Alternatives. Broken Office Chair is hosted by Alternatives Executive Director, Bessie Alcantara. Bessie is a Chicago native, first-generation Salvadoran Mexican-American who's passionate about dismantling systemic racism. In each episode, Bessie will be joined by her friends and colleagues who are ready to speak candidly about their experiences as people of color in their various professions. In the episodes, they'll address topics such as issues in the nonprofit sector, racial equity, DEI in practice, and much, much more. So stay tuned. All right. So today I am joined by Tim Jones, public speaker, community advocate, and author of Leave No Potential on the Table. Thanks for joining me. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me, Miss Betsy. Oh, that's weird. <laughs> so to kick us off, why don't you tell us a little bit about how you came up with this concept for your book, Leave No Potential on the Table? Well, for me, I, I feel like I struggled for many years trying to figure out what to do with the gifts, skills, abilities, and talents that I had. Um, there were some of them that I, were comfort- I was comfortable with sharing. But the writing and the motivational speaking and like I remember one time I got business cards and put life coach on there. And I was like, you know what? People are going to be like, who does he think he is? He 24 handing out business cards with the words uh, with the title life coach on them. So I just began to suppress those gifts, skills, abilities and talents. And it was just, you know, serving, working, doing what I do. And so I think the book, well, I know the book is an exercise in reverse suppression. This idea that whoever I believe I am, whatever I believe God called me to do, those gifts, skills, and abilities, I'm gonna get them out of me. And I'm gonna figure out a way to leave no potential on the table and die empty. And so it was a moniker that was created like in 2017. I was working out and I was listening to a podcast with uh, one of my favorite authors, my favorite authors and I'm forgetting his name (laughs) curly hair skinny guy outliers um Malcolm Gladwell I I was like I had that book (laughs) yeah I don't know why that just slipped my mind like that and he just said something he's like leave no potential on table and I was like wait a minute and I just started using it after any motivational anything that I felt like was aspirational I was like hashtag leave no potential on the table and so I just continued to cultivate it, what it meant, and use it to just kind of fuel my life. Okay, so that's interesting. You said cultivate what it meant. What does it mean to you? This idea that all of us are born uh, closed and full, and our job is to die open and empty, right? No matter who you are, God gave you some type of gift, skill, ability, and talent. And it's your job to figure out how to give him a return on his investment. How do I get those things out of me? Um, Boy Scouts, Little League, Mm -hmm. Girl Scouts, TAP. um, It it evolves into leading student council, class president, graduating, having having a major, being in the finance club or whatever it is, right? Those things that you're you're trying to do to just, just pour yourself out on the world. Then eventually you reach a point where you scale your life. Now you're a partner. Now you're the condo association president. Now everything is really just popping for you and you're just figuring out a way to use your gifts, skills, and abilities and pour out yourself on the world around you. That's how we cultivate it and and end up hopefully dying empty because you can't take any of this stuff with Mm -hmm. you. 
So something interesting, and we started this conversation when we were chatting um, the other day, you talk a bit about basically how the faith, your faith fuels your work. Yeah. Um, and I'm, that is, I feel like a topic that unless you work for a faith-based organization, we don't really talk about, especially in this day and age, there's so much controversy around bringing it up because with every single generation, you see more around folks be believing less in religion. Mm -hmm. And so can you talk a little bit about how your journey with faith has fueled your work? Yeah, so I came to faith when I was 20 years old. So I don't have these big, long, my grandmother was a Baptist church mm -hmm. of God. And Christ. Like, I, we, we were the best sinners on the block. You came to our crib my 56, 26 South Justine in West Inglewood to kick it. When you got kicked out and did something you weren't supposed, supposed to do, you stayed with us. So I didn't have these hangups of, like, we go to church on Sunday. We used to get dressed for Easter we used to go get dress clothes, Bessie, get dressed, the finest of the finest clothes you can get from Goldblatt's and all these other Goldblatt's throwback. On 47th <laughs> and Ashland. And we used to sit on the porch. We wouldn't even go to church. <laughs> so I came to faith in tw at 20 years old, and, um, you know, I just started, started reading the Word, going to church with my mom on Wednesday nights, then on Sunday nights, then I was going regularly. And my faith just began to inform my life. And then again, back to what I said, I wanted to figure out a way to, to, to give God a return on his investment and not rob him, right? An acronym, R-O-B, return on breath. God is expecting us to give him some ROI, but what happens most often is we R-O-B him, we rob him by not giving him a return on the breath that he gave us by doing whatever the heck we want to do. But anyway, back to your question about uh, my faith informing what I do, um, I felt like I was called to some higher and heavier lifting once I found out what was empowering me, who gave me the gift, all the promises connected to being connected to God as a Christian. Um, I was just like, you know what? I want to serve. But what happens sometimes in the work that we do is that we want to serve and then we want to save everybody. The work becomes messianic. And we think that we are the savior of our workforce or the work that we're doing. And we move from servant to savior. And what I mentioned to your staff a couple months ago that got me uh, knocked upside the head after I left in certain faith into this, uh, into this organizational health leadership symposium that you guys had was that what happens in the work that we do, which is a grind, which is really tough, we're working with what the Bible calls the least of these, the poor, the widow, the orphan, the refugee, like we're assigned to those people and those folks don't come with casual, um, solve them in a day, overnight type problems. This is, a, we could, this is a walk. And you know what? We started to feel like I want to save everybody. And that's not what we were called to do. We were called to be a servant not a savior. And according to my faith, which I mentioned to your staff is, it was only designed for one person to move from servant to savior. And that was Jesus Christ. And anytime we confuse this idea of servant to savior, that's when we start getting the gray hairs and the ulcers and the hair falling out. And then we like, you know what? F everybody. I don't even want to serve no more. Give me uh, a ranch in Man Montana or give me SoCal or give me Austin, Texas, and I'm just about to kick it and say, forget everybody. 
I'm about to feed myself. I randomly like to Google islands for sale because they, <laughs> they're as cheap as like cheap, right? In quotations, yeah. as like 400K. Okay. And then I'm like trying to convince my friends that we can go off the grid and mm-hmm. all just live on this island off the land. I do this about once every six months. Mm-hmm. That's because why? Exhaustion. I'm tired. I'm T I D E. And then sometimes we get tired with bleach. We get really tired. And we get really woe out. And then we say, forget all of this. But Mm -hmm. I think I figured out that I wanted to stay a servant. Because every time that I drifted over to Savior World, it got really burdensome for me. And the people that I was supposed to help, I didn't love them anymore. And it was hard to help. It's hard to help anybody you don't love anymore. Because I think when you fall out of love, that means you stop cooperating. That's all that falling out of love means. People talk about, well, it's just not working, girl. I, I fell out of love. All that is, let me uh, translate that for you, sister. He <laughs> does not want to cooperate anymore. Mm-hmm. That's all that falling out of love is. And it happens in our work all the time where we just say, you know what? I don't want to cooperate. Yo, you just uh, took me back. Um, the movie Deliver Us from Eva. Okay. <laughs> there was a moment in there where she said love is a choice. You have to choose to love every somebody every day or something along those lines. And that always stuck with me mm-hmm. because it is that day-to-day negotiation, right, that we have to do with others. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think in this day and age, it's particularly difficult to do that negotiation because we always have other options accessible in a way that we did not have 20 years ago. 100%. And not just that. We spent all day looking like this. People can't see me. But we spent all day scrolling Scrolling. Mm -hmm. up and down trying to figure out how we feel about our our life by looking at Bessie's uh, Instagram page. Oh, you cannot take my Instagram page. My (laughs) Instagram page especially curated to my travel. That's my personal one. Uh And my work one especially curated to whatever my executive assistant thinks should be going up up there. Uh So like highlight reels, right? That's it. Highlight reels. Mm -hmm. And that's what we try to shape and inform how we feel about our life by looking on there and say, oh, wow, Bessie got another uh, another car? Or Bessie got another, uh, she on another trip? Mm-hmm. Didn't she just come back from that island that she was looking up? Mm-hmm. Now she's going on another trip. She got, <laughs> she got another purse? Something's wrong with my life. Right. Because I don't have a clutch and the purse that hangs over your shoulder that's with the two C's on it. I got to get my life together. For everybody listening, I have no such purse. <laughs> he is making this up as he goes. Yes, I am. <laughs> um, but it's funny, though, because going back to the work, I think that's how we start to impose our ideas on others. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the questions we like to ask folks when we interview them is, um, tell me about a time in which your privilege or bias impacted something at work. And I had one have a really interesting answer, and that was she was um, – she had a grad degree and she talked about um, this idea of um, working with um, moms who became pregnant at 15, teenage moms, right? And how she would impose on them the idea of success looking like her life and this education. And she was like, in working with them, she had to learn that success might look like you got up that morning, you made it to work, you fed your child. Those are wins. Mm-hmm. And she was like, but I got so caught up in my privileged life. And a, uh, she was a, a black woman. She's like, in my privileges. 
that I imposed this idea of success on others that I was working with. And I think that also goes a little bit into what you're talking about saving. Mm -hmm. And I put that in quotations, right? We save, but we also save with this idea of judgment as to what we think people's lives should look Mm -hmm. like. That's that's very true. Um, And that's that's why I never try to share my walk with God and and project my walk to make it someone else. It's going to be totally different. It's totally personal how he deals with all of us. And there's no cookie cutter way that he deals with anybody. Mm-hmm. There was one time where he used, um, there's just different ways in which he interacts with individuals throughout all of the stories in the Bible. There's not one way where he interacts with an individual and projects it on another to say, uh, this will work for you. And just quite, we just naturally do that as human beings. Is we try to uh, make little mini me's um, out of people and that's not, people need to live by uh, design, not by default. And I know. think one of the turnoffs when I was listening to you talk for a lot of people too is this idea that if you talk about your religion or your faith, then you're imposing that idea on others, right? Especially with Christianity in particular that has a history of using it as a colonization tool. Yeah. And so I think that comes up a lot, especially when we're talking from with folks that have religions that have been marginalized, oppressed, or they've been killed for yeah. having that belief system. And here we come and say, this is because of God. Mm-hmm. And so like navigating that in a nonprofit space, I think becomes really challenging. Yeah, and that's why I try to do my best to speak from my personal experience and my personal walk and not blanket. I, I'm non-denominational. Um, I don't represent a church like I've always figured out a way to get outside of my faith so that I can make connections with everyday people right I've worked I worked for a church for 10 plus years but I have an MBA from Kellogg and I'm a a emerging leader with the Chicago Council on Global Affairs I was a um, in the Chicago Ideas Week I figure out a way to get outside of you know my echo chamber as often as possible because the world around me is not a six foot black man, fa- Christian from the South Side of Chicago. So I don't, I try my hardest not to project um, myself onto other people. That's why I just, or my, my religion onto other people. I don't even really use the word religion. It's funny as, um I have traveled quite a bit. That's that's my where I spend all of my extra money is uh-huh. travel. I just picked up getting my nails done again in the last couple of months, and I'm so excited. Mm-hmm. But um, and so I tend to think that I'm like open and non-judgmental yeah. because of it. But my partner is from India, and he is Hindu. And so anytime I say anything that's like American centric or Christian centric, he catches it. And it just makes me so much more aware of all of these biases or things that I have that I would not be aware of. And so it's like brings up to the constant practice of being better and not imposing, again, your ideals on other folks. Right. I think, too, where our society, where Americans have gone wrong is this idea of telling it like it is and not caring what you're sharing because you know this is who I am x y and z mm-hmm. and and again 
that's not my philosophy and has never been my philosophy. My philosophy has been be strong with the truth, but gentle with people. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I don't really get into trouble too much trouble <laughs> when I open my mouth. Some people may push back on an idea that I have and I could try to help them understand or frame it like, um, here's what I would, would have liked to say it. I hear what you're saying that I said, here's what I, what I meant by what I said. And then, and then correct it the next time. Um, but ultimately, we don't know how to to share um, candor with positive intent. Mm-hmm. We sling with a blade and slice people up and be like, why is everybody laying on the floor bleeding? I was just sharing my opinion about uh, immigration reform. Why is everybody on the ground? Well, you use some words that weren't um, healing that weren't empathetic, that weren't, um, that didn't advance the conversation. Yeah, immigration, another hot topic. Um, Something that's interesting, though, I think that we miss when folks are sharing their story of faith and the work is that it often fuels the work Mm -hmm. because it's so, the work is so exhausting that you have to like basically have a motivation source and be able to check that motivation source. One of the things I like to talk to with our staff and other young leaders in the field or potential leaders is that you need to know what your value system is early on because it will be tried and tested and you you're going to have to make decisions accordingly and so while i don't talk about it often my value system is extremely tied to my faith and that's what leads me but i think that's also what people are so scared of right because what does your faith mean if you're making decisions based on that how does that impact me especially when faith has been used again to weapon to has been used as a weapon towards so many communities. Yeah, that's why it's so so important in leadership to develop those interpersonal relationships with folks outside of those big staff meetings where you get a chance to say, my faith fuels me, I'm a man of faith. Like, I can walk up the escalator with you, I can talk to you in the parking lot, I can talk, you can come to my crib if we cross those lines. Um, if you have kids, our kids can have play dates so that we build these interpersonal relationships with uh, with each other. So when we get into those big topsy-turvy type conversations or boardroom meetings or or disagreements, you, you hear my heart when you hear me speak, right? You know that what I'm saying to you is not harm, it's not trying to harm you. You know where I'm coming from, but oftentimes in leadership, we like to compartmentalize us as leaders and us showing up in the lives of the people um, that we need. They don't get to see this part of me. They don't need to know that part of me. Well, when the shit hits the fan and you need them to, to hear you, to move alongside side you, you want them to hear your heart and your leading. And oftentimes that doesn't happen because we don't cross those lines with the people that we lead alongside. And um, I had an interesting situation. It just came to me. This is years ago. But we had um, the organization that I worked for had uh, gender-specific programming. And so we had um, a girls group. And there was a young person who was trans who wanted to participate in the girls group. And we had to have a team meeting 
because so many folks shut it down. Um, and when we were in that room arguing it out, it was completely being argued with a faith-based perspective mm. and how people's uh, understanding of their religion informed the idea that this young person was wrong and not wanting to promote it to other people. So I had that side of the argument. But on the other side, one of my other folks who is ex at the time was extremely religious, mm -hmm. uh, choir practice, Bible study, church, feeding the homeless once a month on Wednesdays, mm -hmm. the whole thing was actually one of the people arguing that this person needed to be allowed in the group. Mm -hmm. And it was her interpretation of her faith that said that we needed to be welcoming and accepting. And um, and so I think that came up for me because you talk about knowing, like having the interpersonal relationships. Mm -hmm. If you overheard that conversation and we landed at allowing the young person in the group, right? But it was just a difficult debate. But we need to be able to have those conversations. Right. And there was respect in the room because we all knew each other. We'd been working together for years. It was a very solid conversation. And um, But if that relationship wasn't there, who knows where that conversation yeah. would have gone. Yeah. I mean, and you looking at somebody who got in trouble a lot in my time in faith-based institutions that I work for you know, asking the pastor, did we have a budget line item for addressing the violence? Because I know we have a budget for bringing in pastors to celebrate your pastoral anniversary mm -hmm. or the church's anniversary, which can, the expenses can really go up because yeah. there's travel, there's lodging, there's the honorarium that you're paying for. Um, so where's the budget for dealing with the number one issue in, in our city? Uh, I got in trouble for, I was at a place where they wanted people who identify as pedophiles to sit in a certain section of the church that they couldn't penetrate that particular area. I was the person who wanted to have a conversation on gray marriage, this idea that marriage was no longer black and white, that it was gray. And how do we talk to our parishioners about it? That got shut down. And so, you know, Again, I think I benefit from coming to faith so late in life where I don't have all the, the hurt, habit, and hang-ups that people carry mm -hmm. as a result of growing up in the church and having to be there on Monday night for whatever happens on Monday night, Wednesday night for midweek, Thursday for, for, for kids' club, Sunday for three services, and then coming back Sunday. I didn't grow up like that. And so I'm, I was like this hybrid Christian hood rat where it was just like, you know what? Christian hood rat. I want a hoodie <laughs> with that term right now. <laughs> where I, I, I understand God's principles, but I'm not beating people over the head with it from a legalistic standpoint. I'm still stuck on Christian hood rat. <laughs> you can use that. Tweet that. Right. Um, no, what was I about to say? Oh, but you're missing out on Catholic ch shame. I was raised Catholic. Uh, okay. And that's a that Catholic guilt is a good one to weaponize against folks to get them to do what you want to, or for my mom to use against me. See, I I I, I speak to organizations and corporations all the time, and I tell leaders all the time, shame is not a leadership development mm -mm. tool. Mm -mm. And in in the case of what we're talking about, shame does not is not does not correct people's people's behavior. Right. You can't shame anyone into better behavior. Mm -hmm. It's impossible. Um, what you can do is help them feel heard um, 
is create space for them to feel heard and not hurt it, right? Push to a, where you want them to go because mm -hmm. you're the leader, because you're the pastor, because you're the direct, executive director. Let me herd you to my POV mm -hmm. instead of sitting down or setting up a feedback loop where you can share so that I can, so that you feel heard and there's a system that you can see to feel heard. Um, so. so there was, um, you had started to touch on it, but I want to go back. Oh, you mentioned getting into trouble for having, uh, for asking for a budget line item on yeah. community violence. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about that a little mm -hmm. bit more. Mm -hmm. And so what have you been observing that led you to make that request? Well, my background, I, I started working for a religious institution in 2009. Mm -hmm. That was one of the largest African-American churches on the South Side. I pivoted and moved to one of the, the largest white evangelical churches in the Midwest. Um, on the West Coast, there's Saddleback and Rick Warren. Down South, there's Lakewood and Joe Osteen. And in mm -hmm. the Midwest, there's Willow Creek and Bill Hybels at the time. Um, and so I've, I've been at two of the biggest, baddest, um, bad, baddest in a good way. Like, <laughs> like Willow Creek was 500 employees, $50 million in revenue a year mm -hmm. at the time. And so I've seen some stuff, and I've seen it in an African-American context, and I've seen it in a white evangelical context. And you begin to see, like, what really matters to churches by what they spend their money on, like anywhere else. Mm -hmm. What really matters to you um, is travel. Mm -hmm. And I bet you there's a budget line item that will back up how passionate you are about your travel. Not a line item. It just takes over everything. It just, I, will, I will miss my mortgage. To, no, let me stop. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I begin to see that as somebody, because normally when most churches take from their flock, to, to staff the church. Mm -hmm. So I was an all-star volunteer um, at this at Fellowship Missionary Baptist Church on 45th and Princeton, um, and I and evolved to a staff member. And you just began to see, like, oh, okay, this is how things work. This is how the money is used, the offering, and how everything is used. I didn't see anything crazy at either other places, so I'm, this is not my time to share that. I caught the pastor rolling around and the offering on his in his on his couch in his office. He, <laughs> he, he, they poured the money on his couch and he was just swimming it and counting it and saying what he was going to do with his wife. But I just began to say, hey, we're doing this. What would it look like for us to do this? Particularly with like at Willow, I was at the Chicago campus and our moniker was a church for the city. Mm -hmm. I was like, OK, let's prove that. Where's the budget line item for addressing what some people believe to be the number one issue in the city, the violence and public safety? Do we have a budget line item for that? And now we didn't. And I, I just push back all the time on how we were using our resources and how we were using um, the generous contributions that our parishioners gave us to do God's work. Um, so. I, I don't feel like I was heard and I'm no longer with, I don't work full time for a church anymore because I felt like, um, again, according to my faith, we're supposed to do greater works than the works that God did. Um, so let's try that out. Let's see what we can do. 
And um, I just was never, I never felt like I was met with the energy, definitely not with the resources to impact the city like I knew we could at both of those places. I think that begs the larger question, though, right? Um, if we know, let's take Chicago as a, well, this could be a true statement for anywhere nationally, right? If we know black and brown communities are disinvested in, mm-hmm. like we don't put resources behind it. Um, when Sears left with the west side of Chicago, nothing replaced Sears. Mm-hmm. Um, those types of things are happening. Food deserts, we all know the stats. What is the church's responsibility to step in mm-hmm. and take care of their community? Yeah, they, had, they, they should lead the way. Right. And I talked about this in in our preparation for our time together today that many, many years ago, the church was the staging ground for all of the movements that took place in in America. And fast forward 40 years from um, the March on Washington or any of the movements led by during the civil rights time, the church is a distant, distant backdrop to the LGBTQ plus movement or the immigration reform. We see how slow their feet are moving um, with the asylum seekers that have touched down in major cities throughout the country. And there is a group of people like looking to the church, people who aren't of faith, people who just believe that if if nobody's going to help, the church is going to help. And I'm not saying the church hasn't stepped up because I think locally a lot of churches have stepped Mm -hmm. up to deal with the asylum seekers here in the city. But there's been quote-unquote asylum seekers in different shape, form, or fashions throughout the history of Chicago, people in need, and and I believe that the church should be the ones that addresses that need. And I think it's happening to a degree, but not re- not really. I talked to you guys, and I, don't, I didn't want to go too scripture-heavy in here because I'm not really scripture-heavy anymore, but there's this scripture that says how good and pleasant it is for us to come together and go to church. Basically, mm-hmm. that's the translation. And right now, in 2023, people have a different translation of that scripture. How good and pleasant it is for us to meet for brunch for bottomless mimosas. How good and pleasant it is for us to bottomless come together. Bottomless mimosas are everything, though. <laughs> they everything. <laughs> How good and pleasant it is for us to go to Neiman's. Let's go, y'all. Let's pack up and let's hang out and go to Neiman's. So this... It's antiquated, is my point. Like, people aren't just saying, you know what, I got an issue. Let's go talk to Pastor Bessie, and she's going to hook us up, give us the resources, give us the tools, give us the manpower. they like, nah. I went there for the Black Lives Matter movement a couple Junes ago, and they was like, they praying about how they should respond. I shouldn't laugh, but it is funny. That's funny. (laughs) But what do you think has changed that pulled churches back from the movements? Well, technology and smartphones and people want to be personalities and they people, the church now creates celebrities, right? Mm-hmm. The pastor is the rock star. The parishioners are the fans. There's a group of people who hang around the pastor. That's his security. And it's a personality driven place. And the personality is not Jesus. Or whatever your faith is, if you have a uh, whatever religious dogma or person connected to your religion, the 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 biggest name, the biggest personality in the place 
is not the God that you're worshiping. It's the, it's the individual that's leading the place. He's got the biggest picture in the building, in the building. He eats a different type of food. If you watch everybody eat, and they eating like brown bags, you look over to his section, he got a different type of water. His stuff was flown in. He's got his own parking lot. Oh, there's a, It's this personality-driven place that we have to feed that should be going towards feeding those in need and, 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 and lifting up the name of God and all of that stuff. It, it just changed. The motives changed. Uh, why we're here has changed. I went to, and I'm, I've been trying to remember which country it is, and I can't, um, but it was a Muslim country. I remember that much. And they were talking about their 10% equivalent of tides. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't remember what they called it, but they were saying that the 10% could be given to the mosque or to a charity. Yeah. But the idea was to give it to something of service. Yeah. Because that's what the work is. Yeah, I, 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 that's, I'm it's interesting you brought that up. I, I had stopped giving my 10% to the church um, that I worked for and attended and started giving it to the causes that was impacting the violence in the city. Mm-hmm. And, I, and that was something that it wasn't a casual decision that I came to because, again, my faith calls me to fund God's work. And when you talk about a tithe, that's supposed to go to the place that you dwell and receive that you're, that you're fed at. Uh, but I was just like, you know what? This place is killing it. Mm-hmm. And they're doing work um, related to what I believe uh, where, what, what needs the most uh, funding and resources and, and, and impact. And so I started doing that. And I would encourage anybody to do that. If, you feel, if you're at a place um, and you don't feel like you're being fed or being developed or the place is going in the direction that you believe it should go in, Number one, you should probably think about leaving that place. Mm-hmm. But if you're giving financially, you should you should think about where you should give those funds to as well. I don't think God doesn't have a problem. God is looking for cheerful givers. And you're not cheerful if you're giving to a place that's not uh, serving in the way that you would like to see it served uh, collectively. And what's going to happen is eventually you're going to start giving, like, crumpled up money. Like, you ever get balled up a dollar and say mm-hmm. here to somebody? That's what you're going to start doing. And that's the only problem God has with givers is disgruntled givers. Other than that, it's like, give where you want to give. Give toward, fund my work. But I want you to be cheerful in doing that. And what happens often is, I don't like this place. I don't like the pastor. And I'm going to still give because that's what the Bible tells me to do. And then you give crumpled up dollars. <laughs> I think I became disgruntled with the idea of giving. I hadn't thought about flip, switching my money to other uh, causes until I was visiting whatever country. I wish I could remember that was. Mm-hmm. But um, I just stopped giving altogether because I was like, what is happening with my money? Yeah. And it's funny as a nonprofit person. I hate it when folks are like, what is happening with my money? I'm like, how dare you not trust me? Mm-hmm. But then I'm watching pastors drive better cars than I do and have better homes and, you know, all these different things. And I was like, how dare you? Yeah. Yeah, there's this guy on Instagram who started following. Uh, he's just started tracking what pastors were wearing in their pulpit while they were preaching. Oh, no. <laughs> there's, there's an actual Instagram guy. He's showing you know, Bessie preaching and the shoes that she's got on and their Fendi shoes. And then he puts the price tag next to the shoes. 
And um, this guy's been doing this thing for a few years now, and he's get he gets all types of hate. But it's a lot of people like, thank you for calling that out because those are $5,000 shoes or a $5,000 outfit. Couldn't that have gone to right. X, Y, and Z? And uh, uh, let me find the name of this guy. But that, anyway, yeah. That is wild. Like, that's a month salary for a violence prevention worker. Very true, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, I, I mean, it's I don't want to get too far in it because I don't have church hurt. Mm-hmm. I, I had a great time serving at both of those places. We impacted the world. I, I was an executive director at a faith-based organization in Rogers Park for a few years. It was a housing continuum from the homeless, 36-bed shelter, 71-unit, single-room occupancy, and about seven other properties set at 30 to 50% below market rate. It was probably the most fulfilling work that I've ever done, but it was faith-based and it was raggedy. It was <laughs> run raggedy. I reported to a raggedy board. Um, and we weren't able to do all the things that I believe we were called to do because I was just, I was, I was led by church people. Yeah, meanwhile, I'm sitting here where uh, we, we started off talking about being exhausted of running a nonprofit. Just for the record, I have on $20 Target shoes, yeah, right. $25 sweatpants, and an $11 shirt from Target. That's what, I told you, my money goes towards travel if right. I have extra. But, right. yeah. Um, and so there is so much work to do that there's always this conversation around scarcity of resources. Yeah. And that conversation bothers me more than anything because I'm like, there's plenty of money to go around. Mm-hmm. Folks are just choosing not to spend it. Mm-hmm on solving these issues that are very real. So what do you think you would like to see happen in our communities? Because you talked about how that was one of the things that has been weighing on on you, seeing the disinvestment. Well, one of the components of this Leave No Potential on the Table moniker is how do we help the city of Chicago leave no potential on the table with respect to equity uh, in black and brown communities? Mm -hmm. And you know, I've been a part of movements through Leave No Potential on the Table to figure out how we can have those big, ugly blue bikes on the south and west side, just like they are on the north side. They I, are definitely on the west side now. <laughs> they are on the west side now. We did a lot of work to figure out how to help the city uh, have more uh, equitable procurement practices. They were only, I think those, those bikes are owned by, uh, Divi's owned by uh, Uber. Okay. And we were trying to figure out why aren't you taking, they t- they gave Divi a no bid contract so that they could do whatever they wanted to do, which left the South and West sides not receiving those big ugly blue bikes until like 2023, and this was this was two years ago we were we were doing this fight, and so we were like why wait why wouldn't you take the most equitable proposal take as many as you can so that you can get these bikes in all of your communities if that's what you want if you want to make sure you're serving all the 77 communities so we've been a part of bike equity we've been a part of suppressing and getting rid of the congestion tax that was the tax that was going to be placed on uber and rideshare riders and it was going to particularly impact back in black and brown communities those individuals who live in chatham but work at well, i was gonna say ruth chris but ruth chris is gone and then I was going to say the gap, but the gap is gone. 
now I was gonna say Banana Republic, but Banana Republic is gone. But anyway, those I'm are like the, thinking Cheesecake Factory now, but that's only because I have that. Um, you've seen that video of the dude talking about walking into the Cheesecake Factory, so that's what popped into my. Oh, okay. uh, and Deanna's over here nodding. That's why that popped into my head. Yeah, mm. so that congestion facts was going to adversely affect Black and Brown people who 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 didn't have their own car or who couldn't take the bus and uh, mm-hmm. you know ride shares door to door service and this congestion tax would have made it harder for them to do that and so the leave no potential on the table moniker drifted over into activism and one of the biggest things that i was a part of and i think i'm going to get to answering your question in a moment but i partnered up with the, the teachers students and parents of national teachers academy on 67 east Surmac. okay they were getting ready to close and convert it and make it a high school it was a product over well over 90 percent low income well over 90 percent um reduced lunch they were three points away from being level one plus so that's the highest accreditation mm-hmm. that a school can attain in cps and the, the mayor um emmanuel Alderman Pat Dow and at the time Janice Jackson were they were going to close it and convert it into a high school for the affluent white Asian and black people in the South Loop so I think I read it in Southside Weekly in High Park is a a publication called uh, Southside Weekly and I was like what is this this is crazy so I attended the meeting and I hear the parents talking I hear the teachers talking and everybody's like how could they do this to us And they were just not really seeing it for what it was. It was this big classic race and class issue where uh, these individuals get steamrolled by the mayor's office and what the mayor wants to do with land based upon what a group of people is telling him he should be doing with it. Anyway, long story short, we worked really hard. I got the parents and the teachers and the children on WVON, shout out to WVON, largest black talk radio station mm-hmm. in the country. They were able to cascade their message through there. We cascaded that message through social media, started a movement. Um, we went to uh, testified at the Board of Education. They got on the news, da 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 da. Long story short, they didn't close and convert National Teachers and uh, National Teachers Academy. Um, my homegirl, Nikita, um, I can't remember Nikita's last name, but Nikita ended up starting. Uh, a diversity, equity, inclusion nonprofit as a result of this. So not only did we not did we stop the closing and conversion of NTA, there was a documentary made. Every like there was this uh, the the neighborhoods and black and brown people were stimulated as a result of this that reached well past them not closing and converting the high the elementary school into a high school. My point to saying that is. The work that I do, probably at the core of my faith, is trying to figure out how to balance the scales of black and brown um, neighborhoods. How to, mm-hmm. how to, this old adage of how do we make the south and west sides look like the neighborhood that we're sitting in today, which is uh, Streeterville. That's a big task. That's a big task. And so for me, to answer your question mm-hmm. seven hours later, <laughs> I believe it's economics. You, mm. you know, you sit in and you sit some of my other friends down. We share some mutual friends. They may tell you um, it's education. Um, they, some people may tell you um, it's workforce development. But for my money, it's, it's economics. You know, 60% of the homicides in 2022 um, happened in about 12 to 15 neighborhoods. And 
those 12 and 15 neighborhoods all have this in common. None of them have a Michelin star restaurant. None of them have an 1871. None of them have a, a Shakespeare theater. None of them have um, investment in perpetuity. Mm -hmm. This idea that it gets built and my kids' kids are going to be able to have fun here, are going to be able to experience, going to get a job here, going to be able to grow and develop as a result here. And so I believe that economics could fix those 12 or 15 neighborhoods in a heartbeat. Mm -hmm. What is the issue? Where, where is the lack of urgency in investing in those neighborhoods? What well, a lack of urgency is they are, if you rewind 30 to 40 years, these are the same neighborhoods that we etched red marker on where we got the term redlining. Mm -hmm. Not desirable, mm -hmm. not dignified. Don't invest here. As a matter of fact, let's put all the black and brown people here. And as a result, like people think that we just, that kids are just downtown on cars mm -hmm. because that's that's what we want to do tonight, y'all. We're going, we going to 7-Eleven. We're going to tear up 7-Eleven. We're going to dance on cars. They wouldn't have came to that conclusion if they had a boys and girls club. Mm -hmm. You mentioned food deserts. Those kids come from not just food deserts, fitness deserts. Mm -hmm. They don't just come from food and fitness deserts. They come from recreational deserts. And all deserts do in urban America is produce violence. That is the com that's, that's the commonality between the violence and is, uh, having a desert um, for a neighborhood. It produces violence. You're all, that's going to always be the end result to fitness, food, and recreational deserts. Violence. Yeah, I talked about this a little bit on a, on a different podcast because of all the things I used to get myself into as a teenager and all was fun, but we were not downtown because we had different, like downtown in Millennium Park because we had different options back then. And you know what, Bessie? We couldn't go downtown because I grew up on 56 and Justine where it was Gangsta Disciples, and to get downtown, I had to go through Motown, mm. who are Black Peacestone Rangers. Those are rival gangs. So I ain't leaving my neighborhood. So that's my one of my one of my friends said, "Man, we would have never done that. We, <laughs> boy, we couldn't get we couldn't go from our three block radius because of gang violence. Mm -hmm. So we had to be around the people that would keep us safe and where we would be safe. But if we could have went downtown, we would have went downtown and we would have acted up. The only difference is we would have had to run. We would have had to fight the Blackstones to get there." And then the second thing is, it wouldn't have been no camera because there were no cameras. Right. There were no phones. I am so glad I grew up before there were cameras oh and phones everywhere. Oh That's goodness. a whole other podcast, I yeah. think. Yeah. You No. I, I don't know that I could be an ED today had I had cameras when I was growing up. Because they're going to pull that footage during your interview process. <laughs> like, what was it where you, that you were thinking at this mm -hmm. moment? We're not going to talk about that. Mm -hmm. But believe it or not, we are at time. So what would you want folks to take away and either take away or what is the one thing that they can do to help with what we're seeing today? One of those questions, whichever one you want. Well, I think it's really important to sit in positivity. It's mm -hmm. the unique word found in positivity is sit. It's, this stuff is not, we have to be patient while also working. Um, but you have to be positive patient and consistent. It's not going to happen if you start getting mad at young people. Mm -hmm. It's going to be very difficult 
to help young people that you believe to be predators, that you believe to be violent or criminal. It's going to be hard to love them, and as a result, it's going to be hard to, to help them. And so it's really important for us to be uh, to sit in positivity while we do the work that we do. As hard as it is sometimes to mine for positivity, we have to mine for it so that we can develop the strategies and intention to serve black and brown communities. Um, I feel like we've been a little bit all over the place with faith, with motivation and inspiration. But I mean, that's, that's the person that you brought in today is somebody who holds those values close to my heart while also doing the work. I think that we can count on one hand the number of folks who stayed on one topic. Okay, okay, good. So mm -hmm. I'm, in, I'm in good company because mm -hmm. I've heard some of the people that have been here. But sit in positivity while you do the work. Don't sit in positivity and not work. <laughs> I'm not saying that. I hope you don't hear me saying that. But sit in positivity while, while you work and mind for the good. Mind for the good stories and the good people that come along with the work. All right, Tim, where can folks find you online? I am timjones.com. My new website is releasing on my birthday, September 18th. Virgo. Uh, big Virgo, not the little <laughs> one. Um, so, yeah, my website is, is up and available, but there'll be a new one. I am Tim Jones on Instagram. Every day you'll get some type of motivation, inspiration. Um, Timothy Jones on LinkedIn for some leadership thoughts. And I think that's it. I, 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 Timothy Jones on Facebook if you want to join that pit, that mosh pit. Nobody really mosh pits anymore. Nope. But All you right. can find my book, Leave No Potential on the Table, Your Best Contribution to the World, on Amazon.com for the hot, a hot $15. <laughs> That's like two caramel mochiato. That's what it is these days. Whatever you call it. <laughs> well, thank you for being here. It's my pleasure. Thank you, Bessie. Thank you, the entire team. Thank you. If you're enjoying this episode, we have a few upcoming events that will be perfect for you. Join Alternatives and Broken Office Chair on October 5th at Chicago United for Equity for our second Cocktails and Complicity event. Guest speakers Ayoka Samuels and Leslie Honoré from Broken Office Chair Season 1 will join Bessie in discussing the complex dynamics that perpetuate inequality in the nonprofit sector such as being a woman of color in nonprofit leadership, the nonprofit industrial complex, the intersection of capitalism and philanthropy, and much more. Come enjoy a cocktail, network with nonprofit friends, and engage in these much needed conversations. The link to RSVP will be in the show's notes. Have you been personally impacted by a toxic nonprofit? Do you have a nonprofit horror story that you're dying to share? We're right here with you. Join Alternatives for an in-person open mic night where nonprofit friends can gather and share horror stories about navigating the nonprofit industrial complex. Come prepared with your favorite story, poem, or song about the terrors of funder site visits, annual appeals, audits, and more. We invite you to share a drink with colleagues and revel in the joys of nonprofit life. The link to RSVP will be in the show notes. To keep up with everything going on at Alternatives or to donate, you can visit us at our website, alternativesyouth.org. You can also follow us at Alternatives Inc. on Instagram or at Alternatives Youth on Facebook. If you want to keep up with Bessie, 
You can follow her on Instagram and TikTok at Bessie underscore Alcantara. Broken Office Chair is hosted by Alternatives Executive Director Bessie Alcantara. It's produced, researched, and edited by Catherine Bess and Deanna Phillips. Thanks for listening. <laughs>